From the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Each week, we bring you in-depth conversations with today's leading filmmakers. It's June 9th, 2016. I'm Michael Odemark, one of the show's producers. De Palma is a new documentary from filmmakers Noah Baumbach and Jake Paltrow that traces the career of American master Brian De Palma, movie by movie, from his early days in the Greenwich Village filmmaking scene, through his work in Hollywood in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, all the way up to his recent productions outside of Hollywood. The film takes the form of a lively conversation with the director, who offers frank commentary on his successes and failures. De Palma screened as a special presentation during the 53rd New York Film Festival, and it opens in theaters this Friday. Brian De Palma, Jake Paltrow, and Noah Baumbach joined us this week for one of our free talks, which are sponsored by HBO. In a wide-ranging conversation, they discuss the making of the film, the legacy of De Palma's work, and more. Let's go now to their conversation. Hi there, this is Alison Goldberg from the Film Society's fundraising team. The Walter Reed Theater is turning 25 this year. Built in 1991 as a year-round home for film at Lincoln Center, the Walter Reed recently won the Village Voice Award for Best Movie Theater in New York. Manola Dargis of the New York Times agrees, calling it one of the finest movie-watching rooms in the city. In honor of the theater's birthday, we're planning some long-overdue renovations that will make this great theater even better, including a new screen, 4K and 16mm projectors, updated lighting and sound systems, and much more. But to make this all possible, we need your help. Naming a seat in the Walter Reed will help us accomplish these goals and lets you or a loved one become a permanent part of the theater's rich history. For more information about seat naming opportunities and the renovation project, visit filmlink.org WRT25. Paltrow. And I just want to say that Brian is en route from, yeah, maybe we should put Brian there. We'll leave it for Brian. So imagine that he's here. And <laughs> Did you guys have to do any convincing to get Brian to agree to, to do this movie? We, we, we thought we were going to, but he said yes right like away. instantly? Yeah. Yeah, yeah we yeah. set it up quickly enough so that he couldn't change his mind. Right. <laughs> like one you, week later, we shot it. I did you know right away what kind of movie you were making? In other words, just him? Yeah. 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 Yeah, and we had the idea also, although I, I think I wasn't entirely sure how it would work, but I, I, that we had the idea that we would take our voices out also. Yeah. Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. that we did. I mean, I mean I, I, in, a, in a way, I feel like we didn't even necessarily know it would be a full movie. Like it, was, it was sort of selfishly archived for us, and it's coming out of these dinners that we had with Brian um, for several years, and thinking, you know, if he would talk to us on camera the way he talks. Right. And just to, to orient everyone, this is a long friendship between the three of you. Yeah, I mean, Noah's yeah. known him for 20 years. Yeah, I, yeah, I've known him like 20 years now. We're old friends. Um, <laughs> and, uh, um, <laughs> and I'd say, but like the group and, and Jake and I became friends separately. Jake and Brian became friends separately. Yeah. And then I would say it's been probably about 10 years that we've sort of all like hung out as a, as a group. Mm-hmm. And he looks at cuts of your movies and yeah. Yeah. He, uh, I mean, I think, you know, if Brian were here, he would say that, that he misses having a kind of coterie of directors that he feels close to that he can 
you bounce ideas off of and and you know for us you know i think we, we gravitated towards to that exact kind of you know thing i think there's it can be lonely in a way if you if you particularly if you write and direct you know you're you don't you know making movies and it's it's always a kind of um i always find like when i even you know meet directors who I don't even like that much. I'm kind of always enjoy talking to them because I feel like there is a kind of shared experience no matter what. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, you know, but then you make that person Brian or Jake or, you yeah. know, Wes or, you know, people that, that we, uh, it, it, you know, it becomes, uh, uh, you know, it's it, it it it's it's a, you know, we all have a kind of friendship beyond that, but it's, it, it is definitely the kind of, you know, key element of our conversations mm -hmm. is, is, is movies, either our movies or other people's movies. Well, it's interesting that you bring up the coterie of filmmakers that he comes out of because that's, of course, you know, the new Hollywood filmmakers and that's Marty Scorsese, Francis Coppola, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, Paul Schrader. And um, one of the undercurrents of this movie is the fact that that kind, that moment in movie making which we all kind of took for granted when it was around, it, you know, was a, a, a blip. It was a, a kind of an aberration um, and uh, allowed for a lot of great films to be made. Yeah, and, yeah. and in many cases made in the system, which, yeah. uh, you, know, you know, allowed, you know, they, they, they would have found ways to make them anyway, I'm sure, but, you know, mm -hmm. that, that they were given, as Brian says in the movie, that they were given all these tools to kind of do their own things is, mm -hmm. you know, and, 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 you know, and have a shot, you know, at wide distribution. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, maybe it'd be a good idea to, uh, let me just ask the audience, how many people have seen the film? Mm -hmm. Okay. It's interesting that he's talking about making the pretty incredible movies and then you end on the poster of, of Star Wars because that's <laughs> one of the films that, that put the businessman in the driver's seat, right? Which, which you know, Brian, I think, contributed to the crawl. Yes, he did. Yeah, so yeah which is in which is in the film, right? Can you? Yeah, maybe you should just explain. Oh, just the beginning of Star Wars. I think they all when uh, the Everyone. story goes. The, yeah, we had heard if you you may know this or not. Um, they watched the rough cut of Star Wars, and I think everybody's very encouraging. And this is our experience of Brian as well. Tough. Brian was sort of like, you need, you got to wrap up, you have to let us know what we're experiencing before we sort of experience all this, where's this world and where's it all happening? And then I guess they sat down together and started sort of working out that crawl that starts yeah. the original Star Wars just to, you know, mm -hmm. orient you with the galaxy far, far away. Paul Schrader told me that when he saw the movie, he thought, well, it's not going to make a dime, but at least he got that out of his system. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a very, very specific relation you know, throughout the film uh, to Hitchcock. And anyone who knows Brian's work knows that, you know, that that's a very uh, close relationship. I feel that he's unique among filmmakers in the sense that he's almost, he speaks of Hitchcock as if he were a separate language. Um, that, that it's almost like he's at the core of cinema as opposed to a, a you know, uh, a filmmaker. It's almost like he's discovered a secret language of cinema. He's almost like a moon to Hitchcock's planet. Does that seem, accurate to you? I mean, yeah, I, I think for us that was sort of the big discovery of the, this experience with Brian was sort of, and maybe didn't even fully realize it until the movie was cut together, mm -hmm. that that's the big takeaway, that this whole visual storytelling first concept that's coming out of Hitchcock, you know, is a language, yeah. 
And I think you said it in one of the things, it was like, it's available to anybody, you know, in a way. Brian consistently works within this very specific language um, where other people have, you know, made movies in like a Hitchcock style or vein maybe once or something. Not that all of Brian's movies are Hitchcockian, but he is using that language to make these movies. And I think for Noah and I, when we got to the end of editing the movie, like that was the crystallization. Like that was the thing that's like, oh, it is this. And it makes total sense even though it's such a big concept, and that was the thing that was probably most exciting to us about it. A visual language in the sense that everything is emotionalized and tied to the lives of the characters and that you can understand everything without listening to the dialogue. Exactly. Yeah, and I think sort of what, what maybe we people, we all sort of, the shorthand of what we think is Hitchcockian is in some ways that Brian obviously borrowed certain aspects of that too, or, you know, the sort of a lot of the sort of the, the femme fatale idea and you know and and but um uh and i suppose some of the subject matter too you could you could cross reference with hitchcock but in a way that's not what's so interesting about it i think yeah. that's what you, what jake is saying too is that it, it is like a, it, it's, it's a language beyond that so the movies that he made i mean the 80s i feel like brian sort of spawned in the 80s this whole idea of like these movies that were all sort of taking the wrong things that there were like like there were so many movies like final analysis and you know uh, uh, I mean the, the Verhovens were, were still of the night there yeah still yeah mm -hmm. there were a lot of these the last embrace, erotic right. thrillers mm -hmm. that were kind of coming on the heels of Brian um, you know in some ways after Brian even sort of branched out and started doing you know doing Scarface other, and yes. other, other casualties of war and casualties yeah. of war um, uh, but uh, but I think a lot of those movies, it, it's not what we're talking about. It's not. Right. It, it's not. Um, it's a very different orientation. Yeah. And I think it gets misinterpreted yeah. a lot. And that, that is, I think, what, you know, I think even misinterpreted by us. I think when Brian, he, he, he's very articulate about it at the end and also really owns it at, towards the end of the movie where, where he talks about it being a language and that he really feels like he's the only person who's really using it now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I was really struck going back and looking at the work how much he is tuned into the plight of the underdog. That's something that really runs throughout the work and it's very moving actually and blow out and dress to kill. Yeah and I think and then the, the sort of flip side of that is the 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 what power does to people. Yeah. You know, that that um uh, which is also some, I guess, an observation he makes in the movie, which I hadn't quite thought about. When you think of like even Bonfire and Scarface mm -hmm. and uh, Casualties of War, and you know, I mean, they're, they're really about abuse of power. Mm -hmm. A lot of them. Mm -hmm. And he's working within, you know, he's working in this system where he's responsible for enormous amounts of money and dealing with people that are wielding incredible power. So it's all part of the fabric of the, of the making of the movies too. Right. Mm. But in a way, like that's where like the De Palma thing that we think of is it's like protected by the personal storytelling aspect of it even right. on something that is like seemingly not you know seemingly for high or whatever that means or like a script he didn't write or you think right. of like there's I think of the untouchables you know, yeah. totally the untouchables and casualties yeah. of war as well I think of like those are because they're like I think if you're working within a primary interest in terms yeah. of subject matter or something like that is as personal as writing you know the sort of approximation of your family life mm -hmm. you know Truffaut movie also, you know. I think Brian's done that so consistently and sort of beautifully too, working inside of like the thing that he can't get off his mind. 
Yes. You know, at the time he's doing it. Mm -hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, Brian De Palma. Those kinds of con uh, conversations happen a lot. Uh, I need 1.8 million. We're only going to give you 1.6 million. What's that about? <laughs> lying. Uh huh. Who's lying? <laughs> well, you never tell. If you, it's very ironic because if you tell them the truth, they don't believe you. Uh huh. So you might as well lie. I mean, I said once to my agent when I was going in for a budget meeting. You know, I could make this movie for a million dollars or $40 million. It'll be a little different. But I still can do it. And he looked at me and says, don't say that. <laughs> so it's all about leverage, maintaining your leverage. Right? Well, I mean, everybody's used to, you know, saying one thing and it's something, you know, you ever renovated a house, they tell you how much it's going to cost and <laughs> it costs a little more. Mm -hmm. Movies are very much like that. Mm -hmm. We were, before you got here, Brian. We were just talking about the distinction between the scripts that you wrote yourself and projects that came to you. Do they feel different in your mind as you look back on them now? No, I always liked working with other people's material. Yeah, it got me away from the particular ideas I had and. Mm -hmm. And so they could mature, and maybe I'll get a better idea. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, I worked with some great writers, so and they were terrific screenplays. So it was, it's good to just go out and direct. Yeah, yeah. But as opposed to something like Casualties of War, which is a project, a real passion project that you took a long time trying to get yeah, off. Yeah, but that took like twenty years to get made, and mm -hmm. uh, and I only got it made because of the success of. Uh, the Untouchables. Nobody had wanted to make the picture, mm -hmm. you know. And it was all—it was, you know, so much of this business is luck. Mm -hmm. You know, if Dawn Steele hadn't left Paramount and gone over to Columbia, and wanted a high prestige project, mm -hmm. and happened to be, uh, she ran Michael Fox's company. Mm -hmm. All these things sort of fell in when uh, Ned Tannen at Paramount said, "I'm not making this picture." It's depressing. <laughs> so fortunately, Dawn saw the greatness in it, and she got Michael to do it. Mm -hmm. And that's what got the picture made. Because he was a big star at the time. Yes. Um, but that one of the things that is very much a part of this movie, which is really refreshing and you know, refreshingly frank about the movie business, is the luck aspect. And the, you know, there's the story about you were going to do Prince of the City, and Sidney uh, Lumet was going to do Scarface, and as chance would have it, everything flipped, right? Well... I mean, kind of, right? I worked for over a year with David Rabe on the script of Prince of the City, and uh, suddenly Sidney got interested in the project. Yeah, I don't mean that it just happened by... <laughs> no, he got interested in the project, and he had a screenwriter that was also interested in writing it, he had very good relations with the UA executives. So what ultimately happened was the project was stolen from me. I mean, I was fired 
and Sidney and his writer came in yeah. and they took the project over, which was a very depressing thing to happen because yeah. Dave and I had worked so hard on it. And irony of ironies was, you know, when I walked away from Scarface, because I couldn't really work out my relationship with the producer and Al, and I, it was a little confusing, so I walked away from it. Sydney came in and developed a script with Oliver, which was the whole Oliver Cuban Stone. thing. Yeah. My script was basically, when I was working on with David, was, you know, like a period gangster picture. A remake it, of the Hawks movie. Yeah, yeah. remake of the Hawks movie. Yeah. But uh, Sydney came in and got this idea with Oliver, and they did the whole Mariolito, you know, Cubans coming over into, into uh, Florida, and wrote an extraordinary script that Sydney didn't think was political enough. Mm -hmm. So Bregman said, well... I'm going to go back to De Palma, and that's what he did. So Sydney wound up with Prince of the City, and I wound up with Scarface. <laughs> now, how about that? <laughs> Mission Impossible uh, marked maybe the end of your Hollywood. I mean, well, Snake Eyes, actually, no, right? No. Uh, Mission to Mars. Mission to Mars. Okay. All right. That far away. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and um, did you uh, when you when you was that a, was that a wistful goodbye to Hollywood or was it a? <laughs> well, Mission to Mars was sort of it because I never made a picture that expensive. It was a hundred million dollars, right. and it was started with one executive who, of course, as soon as he made the picture go left the company. Yeah. So now you're in a situation with executives that didn't give a go to the picture. Do they really want to make it? They don't like stuff that was given a go by a prior regime. Mm -hmm. So they're not too enthusiastic. And we're dealing with a big, expensive movie. Mm -hmm. And I came into it because the original director had a budget of a million, I mean, 120 million. And they said, we can't make it for that. So they said, can you make it for 100 million? I mm -hmm. said, sure. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> what happened ultimately, and I like, I mean, you know, I was a science geek. I, you know, I used to build computers. I went to see, you know, Destination Moon 27 times when I was a kid. So this was a dream for me, I mean, mm -hmm. going to Mars. So, and I came up with, I thought, a very good idea to tie it all together with the face of Mars. Um, but the problem was that, you know, I had a lot of pressure. See, the, the problem with these big pictures are these special effects shots cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. Mm. So when you're trying to cut the budget, you say, well, you got, you know, 30 shots here. Can you cut them in half? Mm -hmm. Well, of course you can cut them in half, but will it be that effective? Mm -hmm. You know, uh, and that, that was the problem I was having at the end of Mission to Mars, because mm -hmm. you need a real spectacular ending, and they kept on saying, well, can you do it with less, can you do it with less? And I didn't really have enough of those shots in order to make it fly at the end, but I did the best with what I had. Uh, and I just said to myself, I don't want to make movies like this, I'm fighting with the executives. Mm 
$100 million to make a movie. It's insane. Uh, and I, that's when I decided to go to Europe. Yeah, because as you say in the movie, it's the executives and the people with the money, they are not looking out for the glory of the art of cinema. That's what? <laughs> you, as, no, it's something that you say in the movie, they are not interested in you know, furthering the art of cinema. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> to, put it, to put it mildly, right? Are you kidding? <laughs> They're interested in making money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, the, 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 the myth persists, let's say, you know, here what and there. Myth? I don't know, well. Um, when, before you got here, we were talking about the fact that uh, when Jake and Noah asked you uh, if you were interested in doing this movie, you immediately said yes. Is that your memory of it? Which one? This one, this documentary. <laughs> Yes, because as you see in the movie, I was disappointed. Sidney Lumet dropped out. <laughs> <laughs> it goes to Sidney. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, I was disappointed with the reception of Carlito's Way, and I don't know if I, if I didn't, did I say it in the movie? Which part? About the part about, I watched it at Berlin. Yes, yes, yes. that's in the movie. It's yeah. a good it's part in of the movie. movie. Where I, Very you know, emotional. I was, uh, Carlito's Way, which is sort of an okay success, but when I saw it in Berlin at the Berlin Film Festival, I was, I remember I was sitting, you know, right next to the screen, I, I was looking and I said, I can't make a better picture than this. So I was very disappointed that it wasn't a big hit. So when uh, Ovitz came to me with this, uh, going into Mission Impossible, I said, I'm going to make a big hit. You know, Tom Cruise, Mission Impossible, come on. But then what Kent wanted to know also was our movie. Yeah, this, this the movie. The documentary this, movie. The documentary about you. How we when got they, you. When they asked you if you were interested in making it, you well, immediately... It, it you start. wanted a hit, so you said... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I went to you guys, right. Yeah. 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 Put me back on the map. Uh, well, you explained to that. I mean, it was so informal. It wasn't like, oh, let's make a documentary about Brian. It was, we had had all these long, did you go through this, guys? A little the bit, long yeah. discussions. Mm, yeah. We had these many dinners and me telling my stories, blah de blah So, and, and Jake and uh, Noah had this camera that they were trying out, this new digital camera. So I was like a camera test. They sort of sat me down <laughs> and they said, well, let's just get this all down. That's you a know? nice idea. Yeah. 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 yeah, it was like a camera test, right? No, we're definitely like a, making a movie about you. <laughs> yeah. See, they all lie. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do a few questions from the audience. And if you can right here and wait for the microphone. I guess, barring you, Mr. De Palma, you guys have now all made movies about filmmakers. Can you guys talk a little bit about that? And for Mr. De Palma, um, they were talking about your relationship to Hitchcock, and if you could talk a little bit about that as well. Thank you. I could be here all night talking about that. <laughs> movies about filmmakers? Well, I mean, I think in our case, I mean, it really does grow out of this thing we're getting to experience in life with Brian, and so he's talking to us very, you know, in a very similar way that he is in the, in the movie, and we recognize that, like, we're sort of blessed to have this experience, and that we sort of like to have it on record initially for us, and then once we started filming him, we realized, like, this is movie-grade, you know, entertaining and electric sort of, sort of stuff, so 
you know, it comes out of this, this, this friendship in terms of knowing that these stories are, are really valuable, but you know, we sort of idolize Brian starting at a pretty young age, so it's a funny thing to have a relationship, a personal relationship with somebody you admire so much, um, and his movies sort of mean so much to you. Uh, so it comes from a really a, like personal place. I mean, it, it's a totally different kind of thing because you're not like directing Brian. You're trying to get him to tell you some of the stories he's told you before at dinner or something. You're going to hit that. But, it's, but you're trying to keep that spirit, and I think that's the thing that makes the movie work the way it does is it's right in line with the way, I mean, it's just the three of us in the room. Like, we're working the machinery to make the movie, and it's Brian there in my living room, and it was, you know. And I think Brian knew intuitively that, you know, that because you know, we weren't doing second takes of things. We were really just having the conversation and starting from the beginning and going all the way to the present, that Brian knew intuitively, you know, that he, he that there was a performance aspect even though it wasn't a performance but he had to tell the stories well like the carry story the timing's great you know and and we hadn't heard that one before no and and also we we were there was a the charade of having to repeat stuff we you know we all knew we had just probably talked about a week ago that we were just doing it now for this to have it archivally but um but you know i think it you know it helped obviously that brian knew what the movie was supposed to be. It wasn't, you know, he, he wasn't sort of, he, he was in on it. So it, we were able to kind of craft it together that way. Yeah. The only thing I want to say, we're not here to talk about my work, but I do want to say that there's something that Brian says in the movie about directing action sequences, that you always have to know where everybody is, right? And, you know, you have to be very, very precise about that and rigorous. And that's something that is almost completely absent from movies now. And that I think that the reason for making films about cinema, like this one, what I was trying to do with my movie is to actually look at the art of cinema at a time when it's not uncommon to go to the movies and see films that are directed by people who look like they've never seen a movie before. <laughs> so. And apropos of that is the crop duster sequence in North by Northwest. Yeah. And when I, you know, God knows how many times I've seen that sequence. And then I'm thinking, you know, I've sort of done sequences like this. And what, how do you make them work? Well, you've got to show where everything is. And you've got to do it slowly so the audience can orient, orientate themselves to the space. And what's a better example than the crop duster sequence? I mean, and you've got to be able to do it slowly you have to t slow down the pace of the movie. And I said, now, I've sort of done that. I do it on the... The untouchables on the staircase? The untouchables on the staircase, where you orient people to the space. You know, Ness is over here, the clock's over there, the baby carriage is down there, you know? So, and you have to take it, do it very slowly, so the audience can sort of figure out where everybody is. I have said this a thousand times in groups like this, and as Kent says, nobody seems to understand it. You've got to go slow. And it's also mm -hmm. in, in the, in the, in the uh, prom scene in Carrie, I take a tremendous amount of time to show the audience where everybody is. You know, Nancy and Travolta are underneath the stage. Amy's behind the curtain. The blood's up there. Carrie's coming here. You know, Betty Buckley's over there, the gym teacher. So 
and then you can let everything fly you fly like crazy. But in the, these action sequences today, the big problem is they all are like noise, mm -hmm. is because you have no idea the orientation of the space. So it's all bang, somebody fall, bang, somebody crash. Yeah. You know, and it's, it's just like noise. Yeah. Including a certain film from last year shot in Australia on trucks. I won't name oh, well. it. No, I don't want to name it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, You've had a sort of tenuous relationship with critics throughout your career, but you yourself are kind of a great critic. In the documentary, you speak more eloquently about film and other people's films than most people who get paid to ostensibly discuss film. I was wondering why you never really wrote film criticism, because you're very good at it. I would read it. I think I did, I did in, uh, in when I was in graduate school, and then it was so, so easy to write a bad review. <laughs> but then I saw, I think it was Saturday night, Sunday morning, and I had to write a good review. I said, this is too hard. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, what's very helpful with directors being critics of other directors' films, we understand the process. So when I, you know, say to Noah or, or Jake, you know, I think that sequence is a little longer. I, I, I'm not seeing where that guy is. They, they understand what I'm talking about, you know? They're, they're directors. And when they say the same things about something I'm working on, I get it. It's, it, you know, it's that whole problem is, you know, writers interviewing writers, painters interviewing painters, and directors should be interviewing directors because they really know what's going on in the director's head because they've done it. So as somebody that uh, worked as in your generation with Martin Scorsese, Coppola, and all these people, what do you think was your achievement for the cinema, or achievement of your generation for the cinema? Like beside the first generation which was uh, great masters like Hitchcock, Bergman, all those people. Well, I mean, you know, it's like the renaissance of American films. And we were influenced by the European films. Uh, and Hollywood's system was breaking down, and we happened to be at the right place at the right time. The studios didn't know what to do. Easy Rider made a hell of a lot of money. And it was like the craziest movie made by the craziest guys imaginable. And they said, well, let's let this guy make a movie, you know? And that's how I got to Hollywood, you know? I'd made, I'd made greetings, which for, you know, $20,000, it made a million bucks, and some executive at Warner Brothers said, hey, let's get this guy to make our crazy movie with Tommy Smothers. So that's how it all, that's how we were all brought into the system. The interesting difference is that, you know, when Marty and uh, I and uh, Stephen were in Hollywood, we wanted to take over the system. We wanted to work through the Hollywood system, not these guys. They're not interested in it. They want to make their small movies their way and at low budget so they don't have to deal with what we had to deal with. So that's sort of a big difference of my generation and Jake and Noah's generation. You want to comment on that, men? Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
as we fly to LA to you know pitch our take on Star Wars. Yeah. Ted, <laughs> you guys don't want to run a studio. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yes, sir. Just one sec. Uh, Mr. De Palma, your films have a visual beauty that is often complemented by some of the best film scores throughout the years. I was wondering, are you often influenced by the music first when you're planning out your films, or do you just let it all happen after it's all been put together? No, no, it's no big secret about who were the great film composers. And, you know, I was very fortunate. My first score was Bernard Herrmann, one of the greatest. You know, and I happened to be lucky that he had sort of retired from Hollywood and uh, I was fortunate enough to bring him back to do Sisters and then he did Obsession and then he did Taxi Driver for Marty. So, I mean, I mean, there, there are a million Benny Herman stories because he had a volcanic temper and, uh, you know, and everybody did Benny Herman imitations, including myself. Uh, but those great composers, we know who they, they are. I mean, you listen to, to score. Sakamoto, I mean, is a great composer. And obviously Morricone and Pino Donaggio. You see these movies, you say, God, who wrote this? <laughs> and, 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 and can I get them for my movie? Or you, when you make a temp track, you use the scores uh, from old, old movies that you play against yourself, and, which is what we did for Sisters, and said, is that guy still alive? And fortunately, he was. Somebody in the back. Yes. Um, do you see a correlation between the success, the, like the popular success of your movies, and how proud you are with them? Like how happy you are with the final product? Uh, do you have the? Yeah. Are you prouder of the successes than of the? Are you uh, than of the, the commercial failures? Are you prouder of the commercial successes than of the failures? Am I proud of which? No, no, no. Do you see a correlation, a correlation between how successful a movie is and how proud you are of it? Not in the case well, that, of blowout. That's, that's, that's the false sense of what you're doing that you get in Hollywood. If your movie makes a lot of money, you're a genius. You don't care if it's crap. I mean, everybody tells you, my God, that's great. Let's make 10 more of those. <laughs> and you say, really? And you say, yeah. <laughs> you know, so <laughs> you get you get false reinforcement. I mean, you know, an artist shouldn't sit there and make the same movie over and over again. The only reason you do it is to make money, basically. Are you in this for the dough? No, 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 no. Uh, so <laughs> that uh, the. Some, sometimes you're very lucky with something like Carrie, which was, you know, was a great book and a, a very good adaptation and everything worked. The cast was fantastic. And, uh, and it was a, my first huge hit. Uh, but sometimes big expensive movies like Bonfire of the Vanities <laughs> are not a big hit and you get lacerated by the press because it isn't the book. Fortunately, the book about Bonfire of the Vanities was a great book about the whole filmmaking process. Did you ever think of making a movie about the, the, the making of a big budget <laughs> movie about the filmmaking process in Hollywood? Thank 
That's, I, I don't know if, you know, because you, you come up in a certain period. Yeah. I don't know how that would be. Certainly one of your most, now, the movie that people talk about maybe the most, uh, one of them anyway, is Blowout, yeah. which was a huge disappointment when it came right. out. Right. And it's um, a film of which you're immensely proud, well, justifiably. I, I mean, there's a whole funny story about that, because that started as a very small movie, you know. And, uh, and one day I was in my apartment, and I get a call from John Travolta, and he says, uh, would you read the script? I, uh, you'd be interested in directing it. And I read the script, and I wasn't interested in directing it. And he said, well, what are you working on? And I said, well, it's a little movie with a sound guy, and it's kind of a conspiracy. And he said, what is it? And I said, it's, it's, it's called Personal Effects. And he said, oh, 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 okay, why don't you let me read it? So he read it, and he wanted to do it. Now you got one of the biggest stars in the world wanting to do your little movie. And suddenly, all the executives start seeing dollar signs. And they go, John Travolta? Brian De Palma? Personal effects? Nobody seems to understand the movie is <laughs> very unusual with a very downbeat ending. Uh, so it starts getting bigger. What started out as a very small picture suddenly turned into a, I guess it was like 15 or 16 million dollar movie. And my producer wound up in taking over the company. Mm. <laughs> so he, we, we completely ran the shop. I mean, blowout was it. It was great until we had the first screening for the executives and I thought they were all gonna die. <laughs> You've never see, heard such a silence after that screening. <laughs> it's a good scream. It's a good scream. <laughs> go, oh, my God. And the movie just died. Yeah, but got a lot of great press. Yes, Pauline But that's also part of the review. thing you talk about, the fashion of being judged against the fashion yeah. of the day. I mean, because now you think come on, that's, is... a, that's a really down ending. Come on. But it's one of the. I mean, it was a problem with Vertigo. I mean, that was a catastrophe. What kind of ending was that? <laughs> the girl goes off the tower twice. <laughs> <laughs> You're saying, like, oh, but I remember seeing it in Radio City Musical. I said, I can't believe this. <laughs> and, and the audience had a big problem. They shot another ending that yeah. they never used, which is on the on the on yeah. the Blu-ray, right? Yeah. So. Which is even sadder than the other. Yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> but that's a truism for directors of an earlier generation, right? Where, you know, like John Ford, if you ask him, you know, well, you know, that one was a failure. Hitchcock was even like that to a certain extent, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we have time for maybe one more. Yes, sir. Wait for the mic. In a film, uh, they are talking about that uh, Paul Schrader hands you the script of the taxi driver. What element do you find that that doesn't work for you and you hand the script to the actually Scorsese instead? And I know because uh, you work with a couple of films prior, uh, uh, you, you work with De Niro prior to the actually taxi driver, you know, uh, the era, so I was curious that what made you decide that. Well, De Niro wasn't part of the package oh, yet. No. Right? Yeah. yeah. There was no, no package. Schrader gave me the script because he liked Sisters, had written a nice review of it, and we became friends. 
And he gave me this script, and I, re I remember reading it to the in the house I was staying at over over uh, it was over the Christmas holidays, and it was an extraordinary script. But you know, I had a picture, you know, sitting on a shelf called "Get to Know Your Rabbit." <laughs> I was trying to make a commercial picture, and I read "Taxi Driver." I said, "This is insane." <laughs> I mean. How can you make this commercial? I mean, why will anybody go see this? <laughs> and, and I gave it to Marty, and he saw something in it. I mean, they never thought it was going to be commercial. Yeah. And only when Bob, I mean, they had a hard time getting it on. And only when Bob, out of Godfather 2, was such a big star, they said, yeah. okay, you can make it, but, you know, do it at a price. Because you know, they never thought it was going to be commercial. Uh, and I remember sitting in when they were screening it and trying to cut it down for the violence, and it was a nightmare, you know. Uh, and, and Marty finally had to desaturate all the blood yeah. so that, you know, it wouldn't get an X. But no, he saw something in it that I didn't. Uh, and he made an amazing movie. Wasn't there a weird moment when that movie was going to be made by Robert Mulligan in L.A. with Jeff Bridges as the taxi driver? <laughs> Strange things happen. Well, that, yeah. I, that I don't know because I, you know, I gave it. I told Marty about it, and I gave it to the Phillipses, and they had it for quite a while. Yeah. And the Phillipses were not sold on Marty because he hadn't made a successful movie. And right. they, I think after he made Alice. Yeah, Alice was the, yeah, then, the turning point. And they said yeah. okay, and and Bobby was so hot, out of Godfather Two. That's again, it's luck and being at the right place at the right time. Yeah. Um, I know you guys have to get downtown, um, but I really want to thank you for coming. And everybody, please see the movie. And I promise you, when you get to the Cliff Robertson story, <laughs> your jaw's going to drop. Thank you. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.